0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, August 5th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler and talking about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer White Train Bowie.
1: Hey, everyone.
0: So, guys, Peter is out at a magic convention, he mentioned that last week, and Chris is on vacation, so it's just us today in the water cooler, but let's just dive right in and talk about what we've been doing. So Brad, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the doc that we that we share right now, and it sounds like you have a pretty wild story to tell us.
2: Uh, I mean, it's not quite as wild as it sounds on paper, um, but I was doing yard work with my girlfriend yesterday, and uh, she happened to notice that there was this bird that was hanging out around near the trunk of the tree, uh, and this was earlier in the morning, and then later, when we started doing yard work, she noticed that it was still there. And as we got closer to it, we realized that it wasn't like a full size bird. It was just a big baby bird that hadn't doesn't even have its like real feathers yet. It was still like a little fuzzy uh, bird. And we looked around and it seemed like maybe they had um he had fallen out of the nest or something because there was another bird that was just uh, like him, just as young and everything that was dead, unfortunately, nearby. Um, and he was kind of just standing there, chilling, just looking around and not really going anywhere. And every time we got close to him, he would open his mouth like we were gonna feed it or something. And so we, uh, I called around to try and figure out like what to do with it. Like called our um, like wildlife offices and everything in the area, and found out that there was a humane shelter that wasn't too far away that we could bring it to. Because um, it seemed I didn't really know what else to do because otherwise we're just gonna sit there, and I figured it would probably just. Die since the the mother probably wasn't gonna be able to find it on the ground or anything like that because mm-hmm. we we looked up and like the tree and there was a lot of droppings uh in a certain area and the nest seemed like it was pretty high up so we took it over there and they uh, they just took it to take care of it and it was it was a a baby uh, green heron so yeah that was just kind of a, a, a random thing that happened over the weekend <laughs> yeah that's wild
0: uh what else have we been up to
2: so. My my girlfriend moved in uh, last week, and we've been starting to get everything in order in the house. And we're just we're kind of in the midst of trying to figure out how to mesh my own pop culture explosion of collectibles and art and things like that with her more subdued, different kind kind of style. She um she's from Zimbabwe, and so she has a lot of like kind of African style things, more like homey decorative kind of stuff. And we're just trying to figure out how to strike a balance between doing the two. And I was wondering, because I know uh, Ben, Jacob, uh, you guys live with significant others. You guys are, um, and i just wondering how you guys were able to, I guess, mesh your own
3: styles and things like that with your significant others.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Jacob, you go first. Uh,
3: it's all about frames. If it's a public area that my wife uh, will be entertaining in, she has to approve the poster, and she has to, it has to be in a nicer frame. It can't be anything cheap looking. So all of our nicest posters that she loves are professionally framed with all the pieces that she helped pick out. And it's just about making sure that the aesthetics blend so that uh, the, the more junk food uh, style posters are in my office and in uh, the neat nooks and corners of the house, whereas the public zones have to at least have a tinge of fine art about them.
0: Yeah, I think for me it's um it's pretty much the same thing. Like anything in a public space, sort of has to have like a little bit more of a, a nicer vibe to it. Um, we have, you know, like uh, looking around my office right now. We have uh, back in the office, like we we have a bunch of art that's framed, and it's not just stuff that I love. Um, she likes all this stuff as well, but the stuff that's out in the living room, I guess, is more um, I don't know. Like we have a big Lost poster, and Lost as as was like a big um. Uh, a big show in our relationship and so that deserves a place of honor you know like uh, above the tv or near the tv like in the main room so it's it's just sort of like a, a joint thing that way and i don't actually collect um you know action figures or any sort of like collectibles like that so there's not really much of a clash going on here because i don't really have much like that but what are you, what are you thinking about doing brad like what what's the approach right now
2: really it's it, a lot some of it is just like kind of condensing and figuring out like uh, what is it maybe that like I'm the, the most passionate about that I want on display in the living room, but also isn't like necessarily in your face, loud kind of stuff. So um, uh, obviously I have you know a pretty good collection of Funko Pops, at, um, and those don't always you know vibe with like home decorations, but some of them are are very cool and they also do represent things that like my my girlfriend does like, but probably will be like less of them on display. And then there are some uh, like the what you would call action figures, you though know, they're not like action, action figures, like uh, Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets and whatnot that like uh, she thinks would be cool, you know, out in the living room. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, we're, we're kind of just fig- figuring it all out We're the living room is going to be, is, is in flux because we're actually going to be mounting the TV above the fireplace uh, shortly. And so that will kind of change the whole dynamic of where furniture and stuff is in the rooms. And mm-hmm. that's when, that's when we're going to kind of figure out exactly how to arrange things on shelves and whatnot.
0: HG, I don't think I've ever asked you before, What what is your, do you collect Funko Pops? Do you have any sort of like pop culture collection stuff? And how do you display it where you are?
1: Uh, I do collect Funko Pops, but I don't have that many. Most of them used to adorn my like office desk, but now they're just kind of underneath my TV, um, on my like TV stand now. Uh, I don't have uh, that many, it's like, I don't know, eight or something. So I don't have any large collections of anything as of yet. Probably the largest collection is like my books. So I don't really display anything. Uh, And also I'm really bad about hanging things up. I've had some pictures framed for about three months now that I haven't hung up yet. So I don't have anything to add to this conversation.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Uh, Jacob, what have you been up to lately? Uh, Well, I was in Dallas over the weekend. Uh, My wife was taking care of um, a family event, which meant I had... A lot of time to kill in the city of Dallas and the surrounding cities, which is uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, Arlington, and like dozens of other smaller places that form one giant metroplex. So whenever I'm in town there, I always hit up a lot of bookstores. I always spend too much money. And today, or I guess Saturday, I drove into Denton, Texas, which is about a half hour from uh, Dallas. And it's the home of a a small college and it has a very college town vibe. Uh, It's very much just sort of preserved in amber 1950s style town squares at the heart of the city and there's a bookstore there called recycled books that's an old opera house built in 1901 it's been converted into a used bookstore and it's wild it's kind of place where uh it's not like a bar and noble where everything feels carefully laid out it, it's kind of encourages you to explore like do you go up into the basement or down to the basement do you go up into the third level uh, you need to duck under things or lift yourself up on areas to find more access to books. And any bookstore requires me to turn sideways to navigate around certain areas is a bookstore I, I, I love. <laughs> There's literally no care given to uh, making it easy to navigate. It is entirely about how can we squeeze more books into this giant opera house space. And I, I feel like that's my ideal bookstore, a place that is just Less about your comfort, and more about jamming in as much as possible. Uh, do you guys have a preference for this kind of shopping, or am I, or am I crazy for thinking that a, a store should be commended for not caring how easy it is to get around?
0: <laughs>
3: um, I, the the
0: question is like, is it easy to track down specific sections? You know, I'm I'm okay with it being cluttered, but like if you can't, if, if like there's no semblance of order to how everything is laid out. Then that's where it gets a little too chaotic for me. But... Oh,
3: I mean, there, there are genre sections. Like, I know it's like, you know, travel and history are, are in the basement. Uh, horror is over in the front area. Uh, contemporary literature is in the third floor. So they're yeah. all labeled, but it's also good luck, you know, finding a rhyme or reason for why they're in certain areas, but they are clearly labeled.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that sounds like fun to me. Um, HD, I know you're a big reader, uh, and you just mentioned your book collection. When you go buy books these days, um what's your sort of preference for where you would do something like that
1: i prefer that kind of cluttered uh almost um a a subjective type of organizing for a bookstore um there was a really great bookstore in dc called capitol hill books uh it was an eastern market and it was definitely something that was organized by the owner's whims so you would find like Russian biographies in one section uh, all the way apart from all the other biographies or something. And it was something that was just really fun to get lost in. And I really, I enjoyed that a lot um, as opposed to a Barnes Noble where you kind of find the same books displayed in every other franchise. So yeah, independent bookstores.
0: <laughs> awesome yeah i actually um the in my little entry here in the what we've been doing section i wanted to give a shout out to a place that uh sort of has that same vibe even though it's more about movies than books it's called videotech and it's in south pasadena uh, my wife and i met some friends there um th- this past i think it was thursday night and i'd never been before and it's basically this place that has like thirty thousand uh dvds and blu-rays and stuff like that and and it's all laid out in this really sort of scattershot way. Like there's there's sections for uh, featured directors from different countries. There's sections for like pre-code Hollywood. Um, I took a bunch of pictures, so I'm scrolling through them now. There's there's uh, titles by actor, which I don't really think I'd seen before. There's like De Niro has a section, Tom Hanks has a section. It's not just drama, comedy, you know, the, the typical kind of genre stuff. It's much more like specialized than that and and specific than that. Um, Jimmy Stewart has a section. There's like movies based on the work of Charles Dickens. That has a whole section. So like it's kind of like all over the place. When you walk in, it's really like your head starts to spin. But um, the place is really great. I mean, it's like it's been open for since 2003. And if anybody is in the L.A. area and you're looking, you, you know, you sort of miss the days of Blockbuster and are tired of endlessly scrolling through your your netflix app and hulu app and all that kind of stuff and you want like physical media this is the place to go i think you can rent stuff there you can buy stuff there Uh, i think they they buy things there so if you have a bunch of stuff that you're looking to sell they'll you know might be a good place to go um and uh yeah it's it's really great so it's called videotech i'll put the address to the place in the show notes of this episode so you can check that out if you want to but i just want to give that place a quick shout out um ht what else have you been doing recently
1: So I welcomed one of my cousins, a new buoy, to New York. He just moved to New York this past weekend. And uh, we celebrated with uh, the requisite dinner and drinks and all that stuff. And I kind of just ended up spending my whole weekend with my cousins again. So it was like, buoy mania, part two. (laughs) Um, And so it was was a little exhausting, though, because I I love spending time with them. But it was a lot. So by the end of the weekend, I was kind of... uh, uh, a little wiped, but, um, I had a lot of fun this weekend, mostly just, uh, hanging out with my cousins. I went to a bunch of museums. I went to the MoMA PS1, which is holding a sort of temporary exhibit uh, out in the outdoors in which they, um, it's a sort of architect con, um, contest that they hold every year. Um, MoMA PS1 is a spinoff of the MoMA. I think it's something that highlights, uh, more individual artists and also student artists, and this concert they do every con- uh, contest they do every year uh, is supposed to uh, give an, a um, platform for new architects. And so this sort of outdoor exhibit slash um, I don't know structure was supposed to imitate a jungle, and you had a waterfall and hammocks. It was very hip. It was very like new york millennial thing because like you come in and they give you a wristband in which you have to put your credit card on your wristband and you can only buy things with that wristband or the um uh the uh code the qr code on it i was Mm -hmm. it was very tech um tech savvy. I was like, oh, I don't really know anything about this. But it was cool. (laughs) And uh, got to, uh, there's a little concert that was being held there um, for like EDM artists. I didn't really listen to it. I just kind of went inside to look at the exhibits while they were playing it. But uh, it was a fun day. And then uh, that was on Saturday. So the next day I went to the Natural History Museum, which I'd gone to before, but it's just impossible to do the entire museum in one day. It's three levels and it's the entirety of natural history so it's just a lot to go through but um i'm just wandering around that for um a few hours on a hot day
0: yeah for sure when i visited new york that was like i didn't really get to spend much time there i think my wife and i saw like a planetarium show there and didn't have a Mm. lot of time to to wander around but um when i go back when i don't know when that's gonna be but when i go back to new york we're definitely gonna carve out some time to explore the museum of natural history that was one of our favorites um, all right, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, I think you're the only one with a, an entry in this section. What do you got for us?
3: Well, I'm still reading Midnight in Chernobyl, which is very good, but I want to recommend a podcast I listened to during my drive to and from Dallas, and that's a, a show called Decoder Ring. And interestingly, another podcast I listened to called Podcast the Ride, which is a theme park podcast, dedicated a three-hour sprawling episode to the history of Chuck E. Cheese. And they referenced this episode of Decoder Ring uh, as a source, so I looked into it, and the Dakota Ring is about solving pop culture mysteries. Once a month is a Slate podcast, and last month's episode was about the Pizza Wars, which was something I was not familiar with at all, and this was when Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz Pizza both went to war in the 80s to be the top dog in the animatronic show pizza arcade scene, uh, and they both you know, had singing animal robots, they both had arcade, they both had bad pizza, and they destroyed each other to the point where the only solution forward was to merge and to become one company and the episode explores what happened to animatronics up to the forgotten characters interviews people from all over the history of both companies and i did not know that there was this uh, crazy period where animatronic pizza shows were so popular that they warranted two massive nationwide chains that End up taking both taking each other down to the point where Chuck E. Cheese is you know always on the verge of dying these days. So if you're in any way interested in the history of both these companies and where all the robots have gone and the people who spend thousands of dollars to rescue them and refurbish them for YouTube shows, um, the Coder Ring episode from last month about the Pizza Wars is very much worth your time. I'm curious, does anyone here have any any nostalgia for pizza-themed animatronic music shows. Like, I, like I do. I have some. I, I, I caught the very tail end of the golden age, I think. Yeah, I grew up
0: going to Chuck E. Cheese occasionally with my family, and mostly just for, like, birthday parties for kids in my class in elementary school and stuff. Um, so I, I remember that very vaguely. I, I watched this documentary several years ago uh, about the Rockefeller explosion, which I think was the name of one of those animatronic bands. That was um, a Showbiz uh, band. Okay, yeah. So I don't remember what the Chuck E. Cheese band name was. It was probably something dumber than that. But, um, but yeah, it was sort of a fascinating thing. That was on Netflix at the time. I'm not sure if it's there now, but uh, if anybody out there is especially interested, even beyond this podcast episode, maybe seek out that documentary if you're looking for <laughs> maybe a more visual component as well. But um, Brad H.C., did you guys ever grow up going to any of these places that had these animatronic shows?
1: I for sure went to Chuck E. Cheese a lot when I was young, um, and uh, yeah, I remember going to a lot of birthday parties there, uh, spending just a lot of time there. I don't—it was really young though. I think it uh, kind of died out by the time I had even started elementary school.
2: Yeah, I went to Chuck E. Cheese—not um, a, a lot, but a few times. And Chuck E. Cheese was actually part of one of uh, what is probably still my favorite birthday party ever, which was in February of 1997 when I turned 11 because my parents got me and like 10 of my friends out of school slightly early to catch the first showing of the Empire Strikes Back Special Edition, which came out exactly on my birthday. Uh, We went to Chuck E. Cheese, drove back in somewhat of a blizzard, and had a sleepover at my uh, my house. And it got a little bit extended because the weather was so bad because of the snow. (laughs)
0: Man, that sounds like a kid's dream. That's perfect.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. I do want to point out that if you go to YouTube, there are thousands of videos uh, from Chuck E. Cheese's glory days of the live shows, of employee training videos, which are astonishing because they utilize the Chuck E. Cheese characters, and doing so will give you will bring you much joy, but will fuck with the YouTube recommendations in a way so hard that I don't, I don't know how I'm gonna get out of this whole guys. My YouTube page <laughs> is now entirely audio animatronic Chuck E. Cheese videos. <laughs> Oh man. Uh,
1: that sounds well, like some sort of uncanny horror right there.
3: Yeah.
0: Best of luck to you, Jacob. Uh,
2: all right, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh Brad, let's start with you. Uh I went to see Hobbs and Shaw or I guess Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw uh this past weekend. And I think that I ended up like I think I ended up liking it more than pretty much everybody here who's seen it. Uh I just had a blast with it and I honest, it's it definitely doesn't feel like a fast and furious movie., uh, it's a little bit more, um, I guess, bombastic than a fast and furious movie, which is saying something. Uh, and the style is is completely different. It feels much more like uh, kind of an a little bit of an old school uh, buddy action comedy along the lines of like uh, a rush hour or something like that. And I actually I think I liked it more because that it was so different from a fast and furious movie. And Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham are just great together. Uh, it's It goes in a completely different direction as far as the style of action because it introduces sci-fi elements. But I just, I don't know, I found myself getting caught up in it and having so much fun. Uh, there's two great, great cameos in it, which I won't spoil, which I, uh, was, I did, wasn't aware of and was very satisfied with. Uh, one of them seems like maybe it's a little too much, a um, little on the nose for the cameo, that, as, as far as what I, what I'll say. But yeah, I just I I laughed so much watching this movie. It was just ridiculous and completely enjoyable and like I just felt like a, a good way to to close out the summer.
0: Ht, hey, I know you saw Hobbs and Shaw as well. You reviewed it. What did you think about this movie?
1: I thought it was fine. Um I actually ex- had expected more of the bombast that had been promised to us in the trailers, but I felt like it took too long to get there. The first hour of the film felt like it was trying too hard to plant the seeds for a larger franchise and to also deliver some exposition that really wasn't necessary. Like, we don't need to know what exactly this virus does. We already know what we're in for as soon as we sign we up for Hobbs and Shaw. And so, like, the last half, I think, was much stronger than the first half just because it finally delivers that action. It finally has that ridiculous, uh, the ridiculous scenarios and the bombast and the over-the-top um, uh, over-the-top action sequences and just like all the logic flies out the window. At one point, during a fight, the big battle scene in Samoa, uh, it the the it's a battle scene that takes starts in the middle of the night, and suddenly within like two minutes it's suddenly like midday yeah. and it, there's no explanation for it. No one blinks an eye and then like five minutes later it's raining. So it's just not it's not, like just, a, not just
2: not just not just raining, but like hardcore downpour yeah, thunderstorm. It,
1: it makes no sense and for that that kinda of, that movie I was down for but I just was very impatient with the first half of the film. And um, I was even fine with it not being a Fast and Furious movie. It made it easier for me to reconcile the fact that we're supposed to sympathize with Shaw, a character who has yet to um, to be uh, held accountable for killing Han. There is no justice for Han in this movie. I was very upset by that. But then when I just forget that it's about actually Shaw because they're really playing brand new characters, there's no sembl- resemblance at all to their characters from Fast and Furious really. Um, I was fine with that, <laughs> so in the end, I think I'm kind of between uh Brad and Ben, who was a little less warm to it, but um, I think it was just fine. It delivered on what it was supposed to do um, and um I just wish it delivered it faster
2: yeah i do I do wonder if the the quote unquote uh justice for Han will come in the form of maybe another retcon where like the maybe the reasoning behind. Him getting caught up in all the Fast and Furious stuff is, is somehow tied to this this uh, mysterious corporation that Idris Elba is working for, and I wonder if they'll lessen that blow a little bit by making it seem like oh he was doing it for you know even even different reasons beyond you know just revenge for his brother. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. The, the track is certainly laid for that. Um I'm very curious to see what's gonna happen because I spoke with Chris Morgan, the writer producer of Hobbs and Shaw, and he he talked a little bit about this. I'll link to my interview in the show notes and actually we might play the whole thing on the the podcast episode tomorrow, but uh, we'll see how the news treats us. But um all right, yeah, so that that's Hobbs and Shaw. I'm I'm Brad, I'm I'm genuinely glad that it worked for you because I think it's gonna work for a lot of people. I think it's very much a um, you know, a sort of like goofy fun uh, you know, ridiculous action type of movie. And it reminded me a lot of, of Tango and Cash, you know, like that kind of, it was like a modern day remake of Tango and Cash, I thought. Um, and, and you know, that movie is insane, but I sort of love it for how goofy it is. And I, the Fast and Furious movies are always just riding a very, very fine line between, you know, going, like how far is too far and like uh, incorporating the family elements, which this movie tries to do a little bit, but not It's not quite as successful as I would have liked to see it, but, um, but yeah, the point is, I I think it's gonna work for a lot of people, and I think it's it's, (laughs) I I find myself in a very very small, um, group of uh, like the Venn diagram that you know where I fall on this on this chart is like. (laughs) a a razor thin sliver of like exactly what I want a fast and furious movie to be or a spinoff to be. So uh, I have, you know, a much more narrow um, (laughs) expectations for it, I guess. But I think a lot of people are going to dig this film. Jacob. uh, Yeah. Jacob, are you, are you planning on seeing this at any point?
3: I am planning on seeing it, but I'm seeing the farewell first this week. So that's much my priorities lie right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. See
2: that.
3: Yeah. Probably a good call. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching?
2: Um, I So I watched an episode of the show Fixer Upper. Uh, after getting some stuff unpacked, my girlfriend and I were kind of uh, watching something to maybe just like unwind, but also maybe give us like possibly just some ideas of some, some stuff we can do around the house as far as like decorating and like moving stuff around and that kind of thing. And I had never seen the show before. Um, I was familiar with the concept of it, obviously, but... Uh, it's a very fun show. The couple uh, at the center of it is great, and but I, I did learn a frustrating fact about this uh, is that so they they re, they um, redo like a house for a couple uh, so that they can they can buy it and they have like a budget and they they're like okay we'll spend this and they well, they fix up the whole house and they you know gut it from the inside out and redo a bunch of things and then they decorate it all nicely and stuff like that. But apparently after they decorate it nicely inside they don't get to keep like all the furniture and cool stuff that they put inside of it to make it look cool they just get the empty house and i'm like that's bullshit because like all this <laughs> stuff looks great with all this all like all that stuff in it why don't they get to keep the stuff it's it frustrates me
0: <laughs> wow yeah that's uh that's reality tv for it you know
3: <laughs> very annoying um, well this is the only time we'll ever talk about fixer upper on this show so can i open a cr- my can of worms regarding a fixer upper yes all right, I have seen every episode of Fixer Upper. Um, Whoa! Uh, my wife is a big fan. HGTV's on at our house constantly. Uh, and HTV's been rerunning the show constantly since Ship and Joanna Gaines, the creators and personalities at the center of the show, ended their contract with HTV uh, and are working on separate things. And so that means that they only have a limited number of episodes, a certain number of, like, Dozens of them, maybe over hundred, but they replay them constantly. So I'm always re-say, reviewing the same episodes of Fixer Upper. And here's where things start getting strange. Uh, they're based out of Waco, Texas, which 20 years ago was really in shambles and falling apart. And here comes Chip and Joanna Games with this massively popular show. We start redoing all these old houses, you know, in rural Texas. And now suddenly Waco is a tourist attraction. Where people come in from far and wide to go to the Chip and Join Gaines' various shops and restaurants, and it's become very hip and very trendy. But at the same time, uh, the poor population, the mostly black population, is, has, has turned against them, saying they're gentrifying the area and are destroying Waco's soul. And meanwhile, the Chip and Gaines are donating a bunch of money to their church, and their church is extremely right wing and is using their money for nefarious purposes. And it's become this huge legal struggle in Waco over how much power uh, the Church of Chip and Joanna Gaines has because they're so popular and so successful, and they've given their church a platform on which to dominate the city. Uh, So, welcome to the Fixer Upper uh, tip of the iceberg if you want to learn more about the show that I've seen every episode of. Wow,
0: (laughs) man, that that goes deep.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's crazy. Real.
0: Um, well, Jacob, what what else have you been watching when you're not
3: uh, digging through the, the wreckage of the Fixer Upper universe? Um, the only thing I watched since I've been in Dallas was uh, The Gracefield Incident, streaming on Amazon. My wife and I, as noted on this podcast many times, like to get drunk and watch bad horror movies. And we scrolled past The Gracefield Incident many, many times. And last night, damn it, was the day we watched The Gracefield Incident. And guys, this is one of the most profoundly stupid movies I've ever seen in my entire life about a um, group of French-Canadian friends at a cabin in the woods when a meteorite lands. And would you know There's an alien about, causing uh, all kinds of havoc. And uh, it's found footage, and I just can't get over (laughs) how dumb it is. I mean, I forgive a lot with bad horror movies. I forgive all kinds of dumb, bad weirdness. But this is the kind of movie where characters are trying to get an, an, an aerial advantage to find out you know where their missing friends are, so they blow up by mouth a batch of balloons, and they, even though they're they're full of you know human exhalation and not helium, they float, and they tie an iPhone to these magically floating balloons, and then let the balloons lift the iPhone up above so they can get aerial view. And the aerial view goes so high in a very bad digital digital visual effects shop. They must have about a half mile of balloon ribbon or to make it happen. So, in, a, in the course of 30 seconds, they're asking us to believe that they, they exhaled helium to cause balloons to float, and then had this much enough ribbon on hand to get a vast aerial shot of a valley. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, this movie goes places, but I'm trying to imagine. Someone in the process says, you do know that balloons don't float when you blow them up by your mouth, right? And then they said, oh, no one will notice that. I noticed it, Gracefield Incident. I noticed it, and it bothered me for the rest of the movie. Terrible, <laughs> terrible movie. Don't watch it.
0: All right. So a, an astounding hard pass from Jacob on the Gracefield Incident. If
3: you, if you if you honor balloon
0: physics, you will not watch the Gracefield Incident. Well, don't we all? So I think that's, yeah, that should be a pass for everybody. Uh, I don't for know if me, you've even
1: heard of this movie. Sorry, I'm just I'm... <laughs> Baffled,
0: <laughs> yeah. When, how old is this, Jacob? I know you said you, you scrolled past it before. What year did this come out? Did you?
3: I think that? 2017, but it's very oh, okay. much a, a you know, direct to streaming made with someone's hard earned money. Um, let's put it this way the star, director, writer, and editor are all the same person. Oh, wow, okay, so one of those. <laughs> it's, cl- it's clearly a passion project. And you know what? I'm going to spoil the end of the graceful incident, I'm going to spoil it so. Start fast forwarding if you don't want to know the end of the Graceful Incident, guys. Because it turns out that the reason the alien is menacing them is that the meteorite that crashed contains the alien's baby, who he's been searching for the whole time. And the main character lost his baby in a car accident a year before, so he understands that, oh, the alien's just like me. We both want our children. And then it flashes forward a year, and he has a new baby, and that's the end of the movie. That's the Graceful Incident. That's the ending. It's a nice alien. The nice alien wants his baby back this entire movie. <laughs>
0: This is a very, like, John Oliver-esque rant from you, I feel like,
2: Jake. Is the new alien baby that he has, or the new baby, he has an alien baby?
3: Uh, unfortunately, no. But it's also <laughs> a movie where, like, the alien's picking them off one by one, but once the alien gets his, gets his baby back, he releases all the humans back from his spaceship, saying, here you go, I only took your friends because you had my baby. That's, it's, I can't get over it. I, <sighs> I I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And there's a whole subplot about Bigfoot, about how what? the cabin they're renting uh, is owned by a guy who's hunting for Bigfoot. I kept them waiting for it to pay off. Like, would Bigfoot show up and fight the alien, which would redeem <laughs> the movie? And he does not. The, spoiler alert, the Bigfoot does not show up to fight the alien.
0: I mean, how are you going to... That's like Chekhov's Bigfoot, right? Like, you can't yeah. you can not not pay that off. Man, that's a, that's a huge missed opportunity there. Yes.
3: It's a very terrible movie. It, 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 I, I recommend a lot of garbage on this show because I like a lot of garbage. Graceful incident is a is not even good garbage. It's garbage. Uh,
0: well, that's a bummer. Uh, I'm gonna recommend something that's actually very good. Uh, a movie called Point Blank from 1967. This was directed by John Borman and it stars Lee Marvin and Angie Dickinson, a couple other people. Um, this movie, I had never seen it before. It had been in my queue and my watch list for I don't know, probably ten or fifteen years or something. It's it's one of those that like I've known that I need to see because it's it's an important. Uh, thriller movie, and and uh, you know I, I haven't really seen that many Lee Marvin movies in my time, um a, a few here and there, but not really ones where he's like the the primary protagonist like he is here, um so I finally got a chance to check this out and uh, it was on Turner Classic Movies and I DVR'd it and um man this movie is really really good it's um it's a it's a really good LA movie it's about um Lee Marvin plays this guy who uh, teamed up with a con man basically to rob a... I don't even know exactly what the organization is, but it's it's like a... Um, like the mob for lack of a better term uh and this movie was actually filmed on location at alcatraz which was i I think the first movie to ever do that this movie like i said it came out in 1967 and alcatraz shut down in 63 i think so this was the first movie to actually film there and uh it looks great i mean they steal a bunch of money and then um lee marvin lee marvin's character is left for dead by his partner he's sort of betrayed by him the partner actually like steals his wife and it's like a whole thing the whole movie is basically like him trying to get revenge and and go climb the ladder of this organization to um to sort of find out who's behind all this and and uh get the money that he thinks that he's owed. Um it's a really really great thriller. I think it reminds me a little bit of like a better version of uh, Get Carter, which was a, a early 70s movie from uh, that starred Michael Caine. I talked about that, you know, several months ago. Um but this is a really good LA movie. There's he comes to Los Angeles to find the guy who left him for dead and for this movie to be taking place in 67 just a couple of years before once upon a time in hollywood is set the difference is so stark in the way that the city looks and it's it's so clear watching a movie that's sort of set like right around that time how much tarantino sort of creates this dream world like the, the dream world that we talked about uh, of of once upon a time in hollywood is so much more apparent seeing you know watching that right next to something that actually is like a real look at the city at that time um so anyway i would definitely recommend this movie uh, jacob this seems like something you would have seen right point blank
3: yeah, I saw Projected uh, quite some time ago at Draft House, and it, it's really good. And I, I love that. I love the '60s because this is the time when Lee Marvin could be a leading man. These days, he'd have a J.K. Simmons-esque career, working steadily in supporting roles. But nope, he's a badass action hero in the '60s, and that's great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and uh, John Borman directed this. He's directed some really really
0: interesting stuff: um, Excalibur, Zardoz, Deliverance. So this was his first uh, Hollywood studio movie. And um, I guess Lee Marvin I, I, the little intro on Turner Classic Movies was talking about the the guy, I forget the the host name, Dave Carger, I think is his name, but he was talking about how Lee Marvin basically got permission to get, like, um, casting approval and script approval and stuff from the studio, and he just, like, deferred all of that power directly to John Borman and basically let Borman make the movie that he wanted to make, even though it was his first like Hollywood studio film. So I thought that was pretty cool. A uh, little tidbit there. So anyway, that's point blank. Um, I'm not sure if it's streaming elsewhere, but.
1: It should be noted that this is not the point-blank that is streaming currently on Netflix, starring Anthony Mackie and Frank Grillo. Oh, yeah. That's the first the first movie that came up when I Googled point-blank. I'm like, that's probably not what he's talking about.
3: Oh, yes, good call, good call. And that movie's a remake of a 2010 French action movie. It doesn't even have the decency to be the remake of the 1960s point-blank. So it gets very confusing. <laughs> yeah. HT, uh, what have you been watching?
1: Well, speaking of L.A. movies um, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. My full thoughts I gave on the spoiler podcast we did last week, um, but it's a movie that I liked and didn't love, although I am a little bit warmer to it after uh, Chris made some really convincing and really heartfelt points during the spoiler podcast. I I was very moved by everything he had to say about that, so um, I have to say, um, Chris Has a lot of great points. You should read his spoiler review for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, on (laughs) SlashFilm.com. And um, another L.A. movie I saw and saw for the first time, Constantine. Uh, So Constantine is a movie I've never seen before and I'd only heard kind of bad things about. But with the Keanu Reeves-assance, Keanu-assance happening right now, I feel like there's a certain reinterrogation of his... um, Uh, catalog of movies, and people are starting to come out of the woodwork as being Constantine fans. And one of those people is uh, one of my friends who just uh, has been raving about this film to me, and so we decided to go see it in 35mm at the Alamo Draft House this weekend. And, guys, this movie rules! Wow, I really love this movie. I didn't expect it to like it quite as much, but it's very grimy and stylish and um it's got a stellar cast which in in addition to canna reeves includes rachel weiss tilda swinton as gabriel and a piece of inspired casting uh juman honso and um peter uh stormare in a scene-stealing role as satan uh and um also Shia LaBeouf appears which was really funny to me because this movie is just at the time that Shia LaBeouf was becoming like the next Hollywood It Boy so every one of his appearances in this movie feels very much like a oh he's the requisite um, Shia LaBeouf appearance because he's the new rising star and he's just being Shia LaBeouf and appears for like 10 minutes in the beginning of the film and then just disappears for the rest of the film
0: that is really interesting to know, Ishii, because I I tried to watch this movie probably I don't know eight or nine years ago and only got through the first ten minutes because I and I'm a I'm a fan of Shia LaBeouf on like generally speaking, but I just found him so grating in this movie that I just turned it what? off. and I almost never do that, but
2: no, I th- I think I I, lo- I like Shia in this movie. I like Shia in general, and I I think um, several of us here at Slashroom have been, have loved Constantine for. A long time. I think it was kind of ahead of its time in a way. I think it's mm-hmm. better than most of the DC Comics movies that have been released so far, uh, with the exception of Wonder Woman. Um, and yeah, I, I think Constantine is just is, is so good. If Constantine got released today, it would be uh, like a hit. Yeah, I definitely it for sure feels. It another shot.
1: Yeah, it for sure feels ahead of its time. Um, the style itself feels very like mid 2000s superhero movie, but in a good way, I would compare it well, more closely to um, Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy movies, actually. It has this bold, audacious stylishness that is, you know, grimy, but at the same time is doing something different and looks very, is very vibrant. And um, it's just incredibly um, almost arch in a way. And uh, I uh, I think it's just a pitch-perfect noir. I don't really know much about Constantine as a comic book character. I've never read the Hellblazer comic books. Uh, The only exposure I had to him in the comics was reading the Sandman comic books, and I'm like, oh, this is Constantine. I guess this is who he is. But um, I think going into that without really... Having that expectation really helps me because it just works so well as an L.A., a stylish L.A. uh, neo-noir with Keanu Reeves um, giving the middle finger to Satan and wielding a crossbow um, holy water gun. So (laughs) it's great. It's great. I love this movie. Awesome.
0: Uh, All right. So let's talk about what we've been eating. Jacob, uh, what have you got for us?
3: I had nothing special to share, but I want to open up the table to everybody else. Because when I was in Dallas, I went to my favorite chain restaurant that's not in Austin. And it is the Chili's of Mexican restaurants uh, on the border, which is my favorite middle-brow Texas restaurant in the world. Is, there's nothing special about it, but if there's one nearby, I will go to it if I'm not dieting. And I was not dieting uh, over the weekend. So I want to go a circle. What is your favorite middle-brow you're kind of ashamed to like restaurant that you always vouch for or go to or sneak in whenever you get the chance
0: man that's a that's a tough one um brad do you have a go-to here
2: um it's not one that i'm ashamed of necessarily but i am always uh down to go to a kidoba um it's it's not quite a sit-down restaurant it's not quite fast food it's basically like a different version of chipotle i've always loved it much more than chipotle because they have incredible queso and i always get their three cheese nachos um so yeah if i'm if i'm in the area of Iquidoba and i'm i'm hungry looking for a meal i'll usually stop there and get nachos to take home um man i still can't think AJ, do you have one
1: well uh alternatively to brad mine would probably be chipotle uh because i know he hates chipotle i don't feel see it as like a garbage choice either but it's uh not you know, it's not fine cuisine, um, but it's something that I randomly crave every now and then, and will even go so far as to, like, seek out a Chipotle, even though most of them are in Manhattan, or I will just, like, Postmates one, which is far too expensive to spend on Chipotle, but it's just, you gotta you gotta have a Chipotle breedable sometimes, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I wish that I could say, like, I ride hard for Quiznos subs or something insane <laughs> but I, I I don't have a good answer for this Jacob um maybe that steak and shake a
1: palate for us.
0: <laughs> no certainly not um does steak and shake count that might be like uh yeah that's I mean, that that's counts. one that I sort of like they're uh growing up in Florida there were a couple around me and just the the combination of um those fries which are like super thin and the milkshakes and I mean, it's certainly not good for you that, that kind of food, but like I genuinely enjoyed like those steak burgers and stuff, and I haven't, haven't been in a while because there really aren't that many out here in LA. I think there might be one in like the um, Third Street Promenade, like Santa Monica area, and there might be one in Burbank or something. But um, but yeah, I, I guess steak and shake would probably be my answer to this. Uh, all right, let's talk about what we've been playing. Jacob, you uh, you have something Universal Monsters themed here.
3: Yes, I was sent a copy of *Horrified*, the new *Universal Monsters* uh, board game uh, produced by Ravensburger Games. And Ravensburger is an interesting company; they tend to make games that are a bit more accessible in terms of where you can buy them. You see a lot of this stuff at Target, you know, at Walmart, and they tend to be a little bit cheaper than lots of other hobbyist board games, which tend to be fifty or sixty bucks. Uh, for example, *Horrified* is a thirty-five dollar game. So, uh, they sent me an early copy, and I was skeptical for a few reasons. One. I am such a snob that I was concerned that a $35 game would be not up to quality I'm used to. And also, I was worried that the Universal Monsters theme would be sort of a pasted-on thing, an excuse to, you know, shoot Frankenstein in the face, which is, you know, nothing I want out of the Universal Monsters uh, board game. So to my my surprise, Horrified is a very good game. Uh, As someone who plays, you know, dozens of new board games a year, there's nothing here that was super surprising to me. Like, I was very comfortable with the mechanics right after i read them i could teach the game in five minutes it's, it's very very simple you know, for somebody who is experiencing games but if you're playing with families or playing with people who are new to games it is just the right level for people who are more casual more you know interested in, in dipping their toe into tabletop gaming and really importantly the theme is really well executed Every, uh, it's, a it's a co-op game everybody plays together against the game itself and you pick one or several universal monsters to fight against, and they move around the board based on what card get drawn, causing havoc, killing civilians, you know, uh, causing all kinds of problems, and you have to uh, remove them from the board. In the case of Dracula, that means destroying his coffins and killing him. In the case of Invisible Man, that means gathering enough evidence to prove he exists so the police will help you set up an ambush. In the case of Frankenstein's monster, it means teaching him enough about humanity so that he'll learn to embrace humanity and, and, and leave in peace. <laughs> Give you an idea of how much it clearly understands these characters. It's not about killing Frankenstein's monster. It's about understanding his humanity. Same thing with a wolfman. You don't kill a wolfman. You, you cure him. The, the end is suffering. So it, it... And what's really fun is that in addition to having these really thematically appropriate characters, it has that pandemic thing, where if you play a pandemic game about saving the world from viruses, where... I love
1: you, pandemic.
3: Yeah. It's very similar in terms of... um skill level, where you start the game with one problem, and then a problem pops up, and another. I mean, it's a problem management, by saying, who do we send to where to take care of this issue? Uh, or what do we pr- prioritize now, knowing that the other problem will get worse if we don't check on it now? So, in the early in the, or, uh, easy version of the game, we played one or two monsters. We, my, my friends and I breezed through it. We were board game veterans. We had a good time, but we had no challenge whatsoever. But once we started adding in you know three or four monsters and find ourselves having to really really have conversations about what do we go take care of this issue do we go click click this cross the battle of dracula but if we do that we let the creature back with you and kill this innocent civilian you're having those conversations you know you figure out who needs to be where you know and what's going to be the best choice for this moment and it's a really really fun you know middleweight strategic game and for a 35 dollar game you know, it looks nice. The art's very good. And I was pleasantly surprised by what a good product it is and what a solid representation of these characters it is. So that's horrified. It's at Barnes & Noble, Target, Amazon, you know, wherever you can buy your games. Yeah, that's the biggest surprise hearing you talk
0: about it. Because I, I think, like, the idea of being able to um, appeal to people who, you know, just like casual gamer, uh, tabletop gamers is great. But also, like, the seemingly like the understanding that they show of those characters like the respect that they show for those characters is the surprising thing so that's uh, that's pretty cool do you think people who um, you know haven't even seen any of the classic universal horror movies would appreciate this as well or or do you think that there's it relies on a little bit of knowledge of that
3: that's what we're figuring out right now we're writing a review for the site but uh, a Sasha contributor who's a board game fan but who does not know these characters is going to be playing it next I'm going to write a joint review from my perspective and his as we compare notes. Oh, that's awesome. So we'll, we'll find out. But um, I will say the people played it with weren't as big of Monstrous fans as I was. They've you know, they they seen handfuls here and there, but they were very much on board with the gameplay and very much, you know, getting into the discussions getting into the strategizing. Like I said, if you're the kind of person who exclusively plays high-end, extremely complex board games and I play those too, this is not going to be something that breaks the mold. It is very much Comfortably, it comfortably knows what it is, which is a game for families and people who want a more casual experience, but it exceeds at that very, very well.
0: Awesome. All right, so that's Horrified, and uh, yeah, stay tuned to SlashFilm.com for that upcoming review pretty soon. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcast, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and your general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Hey, Ben. Yes, Jacob. What's the name of the book? Oh, the... I don't I don't recall the subtitle, the... so we might as well just uh,
3: forego this little dance that we're doing and just get right into the insults. Look, what Peter does not know... And he's not going to listen to this since he's off magicing. Is that even when he gets the title completely right, it's not going to end? <laughs> I'm, I'm just toying with him.
1: It's all a ruse. <laughs> he's like an ant and you're the boot.
3: Yeah, well, I've opened up the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and effrontery sharp retorts, Reposts, caustic quips, and impolite put downs by Louis A. Safian. I'm like making
1: it- up half of these like, additional <laughs> adjectives.
3: Oh, I've opened it to the boozers section. Uh, so, uh, HT, the only time you go to the refrigerator is when you need ice cubes.
1: Oh, oh, Oh. I mean, like, that's not inaccurate, because it's very hot here.
3: (laughs) But it's the only time, because you're a boozer.
1: I get it, I get it.
3: And Ben, if you want him to take notice of you, pretend you're a bartender, (laughs) because he's a boozer. Yep, yep, got that part. (laughs) Well, that Brad, when he drinks, he feels sophisticated, Too bad he can't pronounce it, because he's a boozer. (laughs) I wish that last part was actually written out in the book.
0: Because he's a boozer.
1: He's a boozer.
0: And it has in parentheses, deliver this angrily for maximum efficiency. (laughs) Well,
3: your head must be made of cork. It's always at the mouth of a bottle, because you're a boozer.
2: (laughs) This is the story of The Wand.